be able to uh, sing the psalms that connects you to brothers and sisters that have been a part of the covenant community of Christ for thousands of years. That connects you to Old Testament saints. That connects you to New Testament saints because throughout church history, singing the psalms like that has been the practice of the church. So what a joy to be able to, uh, to do that, that ancient thing and to sing the word of God back to him. Recently, something exciting happened if you are a follower of American basketball. One of the best players on the earth today, certainly one of the best centers, Joel Embiid, decided he's going to play for the United States at the Paris 2024 Olympics. Now, you might say, well, what's the big deal? Well, Embiid was born in Cameroon and then was raised in France, and he holds a dual citizenship in France and in the United States. And he has chosen to play for the United States instead of France. And he will play for the United States in France. Imagine how much the French will hate this. It will be great. Can't wait for the Olympics. and see Joel Embiid dunking all over those Frenchmen. Over the last few weeks, we've spent our time in Romans 13, 1 through 7. It's a classic passage about government in the New Testament, and it's given us the opportunity to understand government's origin, government's purpose. We have seen the role that it plays in our lives as a grace to the common kingdom of man, not just to believers, but to unbelievers, because the magistrate bears the sword as a terror to evil and provides a peaceful and quiet life for the citizens. And God put this in place after the flood. We also saw how God has a people, though, Last week we talked about he has this redemptive kingdom and all who have the faith of Abraham are citizens of that redemptive kingdom. And as his redeemed people, we are ruled by Christ. He is the king. He is the second Adam, the king priest who did not fail. And we are citizens of his kingdom. And yet we live in the here and now, holding citizenship in physical countries, voting in elections like many of you hopefully did this past week. We are exiles. People of another kingdom living in this one alongside unbelievers in the kingdom of man. Like Joel Embiid, you might say that we are dual citizens. Until our perfect king priest returns and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of the second Adam, that's exactly what we are. Dual citizens. Scott Annual on this says, we Christians are dual citizens. We are still a part of the common kingdom as human beings, but we are also citizens of the redemptive kingdom because of our relationship to Christ. One day these kingdoms will be united into one eternal kingdom after Jesus comes again. What we've seen, amen indeed. That is the gospel and it is beautiful. But we have seen that we must... As those who are dual citizens, we have the citizenship in heaven, but we live here on the earth, we must be in subjection to the state. This is the command of God. We must be paying our taxes that we owe to the state, rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. This is the instruction that Jesus gave his disciples. So how do we live that out? How do we represent the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man? How do we represent the redemptive kingdom in the common kingdom? That's the question that verses 8 through 10 will help us with. It'll help us with the question of what does it look like to be a citizen of heaven and be a good citizen on earth? And to what end do we do these things? 
Verse 8 begins exactly where verse 7 left off. In fact, they go together. It's talk of what is owed, right? It started in verse 7, carried on into verse 8. Paul says that as believers who live in the common kingdom of man, we should owe no one anything. The Greek word in verse 7 and verse 8 that translates to owe, it has a sense of obligation, right? We, we established that in our message last week. We have a moral obligation to pay our taxes toward the, the servant that God has put in place to restrain evil. And Paul spoke that we should also give re- revenue and, and respect and honor to anyone that it is owed to. And now he says, owe no one anything. It's a negative way of restating what he has said in verse 7. Pay everybody what you owe and owe no one anything are two ways of saying the same thing. It's a positive and negative way of saying the same thing. Now some people have taken these words too far and they have said this means Christians can never borrow money. But we have other scripture that would tell us that that view is wrong. The Bible talks about lending and not charging back breaking interest. If we should never ever lend money and nobody should ever borrow money, it's hard to see why those instructions would be there. The Bible also talks about repaying your debts. So we would not say this is a steel curtain New Testament law forbidding the borrowing of money, but we would read these words and everything that the Bible has to say about money and declare that the business of borrowing anything should not be entered into lightly as a follower of Jesus. Because as followers of Jesus, we take the repaying of debts seriously. We are going to endeavor to repay all of our debts down to the book we borrowed from our friend last week. Therefore, if we are determined that we will repay, we should not enter into debt lightly. Now, while you can draw some application regarding physical debt, this isn't a passage about money. It's bigger than that. As we get into verse 8, we're really talking about that big overarching question of how do we represent God's kingdom in the kingdom of man? How do we go about being ambassadors for Christ? We know that we need to have a submissive attitude toward the state. We know that we need to pay our taxes. But as we get to verse 8, we're now speaking about the main badge of distinction that you wear as a Christian when you go out into the world as a kingdom, as a kingdom ambassador. And the main badge of distinction that you wear is love. In fact, love is the only thing that a Christian should feel comfortable owing to the world. So that's point number one this morning. Christians owe love to everyone in the common kingdom of man. Christians owe love to everyone. All of of your neighbors, everyone who lives in the universal neighborhood, you owe love to everyone. Everyone in the common kingdom. To understand what Paul is saying here In verse 8, we actually need to go back to Romans 1. In Romans 1, verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, obligation, both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Obligation. The Greek word there is ophelettes, to owe, to have an obligation to someone like a debtor. Why would Paul say that he has an obligation, that he owes Greeks and barbarians, that he owes wise people and foolish people? 
Well, in the context of Romans 1, he is lamenting the fact that he has not been able to get to Rome. He just wants to get to Rome. He wants to reap the harvest of the gospel work that's already been taking place there. He wants to see the gospel advance in Rome as it's preached to unbelievers. He's so eager to do this, he says, I'm under obligation. See, here's what has happened in this man's life. We know from our study in Acts this year, that he was an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a kidnapping, headhunting, execution-approving terrorist. He attacked and he harmed the body of Christ with every chance that he got. And yet God showed him grace because he revealed the glory of Jesus Christ to Paul on the Damascus Road, and his life does this complete 180-degree turnaround. Now he's a Christ-proclaiming, Christ-exalting, church-planting, gospel preacher. And having not just received God's grace, but also having been given a ministry of proclaiming Christ by the mercy of the Lord, Paul feels that he is obligated to the world. He owes something to the world. And the thing that he owes to the world is the very thing that has saved him. He owes the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world, which is why he says right after this, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Martin Lloyd-Jones, his commentary on Romans 13 has been a jewel to me in my preparation for this series, and in it, he compares Paul and all Christians to a man who was very sick. Imagine a man who was just hopeless. His back is bent, he's ailing, he's in pain every day, his, his teeth are grinding over the physical pain he is experiencing, and then he meets this physician one day who heals every ailment that he has. Now he walks uprightly and he is overjoyed and he is healthy and he goes out into the world to start his new life and he starts looking around and sees that most of the population around him is suffering from the very same ailment. They're doubled over. They're grinding their teeth in anger over their physical suffering. What would this man do? Would he bypass them and just go about his life? You say, well, of course, if he's a monster, he might do that. No, he would feel obligated. He would feel that he owes to them a message about the physician. He would say, hey, you got to go see this guy. He, he can change your life. He can fix all these problems that you have. He would feel so grateful for his healing, he would feel he owes the remedy to the world. And this is Paul in Romans 1. So going back to Romans 13, Paul says, Oh, no one anything except love to each other. Oh, Ophilo is the Greek word there. It's a form of the same word, ophiletes, that Paul uses in Romans 1 that translates to obligation. And so what we're seeing here in verse 8 then is have no obligation of anything to anyone except love, which you have to everyone. That's the heart of verse 8. As Christian men and women who represent the redemptive kingdom of God in the common kingdom of man, we are obligated to love everyone that is around us. You say, well, why? Why is the badge that we wear that distinguishes us from the world love? Right? If, if you were to be pulled over today on your way home, hope that doesn't happen to you, but if you were pulled over today on your way home, the police officer would have a badge that distinguishes 
them from the other citizens. You know, this is a law enforcement officer. Why is it that love is the badge that distinguishes us from the other citizens? It's because we are a people who have been greatly loved. That's why. We have been greatly, greatly loved. It's just like Paul in Romans 1. Grace has touched our lives through the glorious salvation of Jesus Christ. Just like it it touched Paul's life. We were dry bones. We were dead. We were residents of a graveyard where the coffins are filled with the other spiritually dead who live in rebellion against God. We deserved the fire of Sodom to fall in our perverted lives. We deserve the fire of Carmel to fall on our idolatrous hearts. We deserve the fire of the lake of sulfur to fall on our God-hating souls. But God is so rich in mercy, so great in love, that in His good pleasure, He chose to send His Son Jesus to come and die. To die for your sin, to die for my sin, to resurrect from the grave, to ascend to the right hand of the Father victoriously. And now he calls us to himself and he says, receive my gift of salvation. I earned it for you. Let me cast your sins as far as the east is from the west because I love you. And having received this incredible gift of love, this remedy for our depraved and hell-bound souls, what else can we do but just take it to the world? What can we do to, but, but to go to everyone, wise and foolish, Greek and barbarian, and say, the physician has loved me, and I am here to love you in his name. You do this inside the church, no doubt, with the highest of ethics, because Jesus says to love one another in this church the way that he loves us. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Does, does God give up on you when you sin? When you have a bad day? You, uh, you speak sharply to someone, does God give up on you? Of course not. When somebody does something that's really wrong to you and hurts you, do you give up on them in the church? Do you write them off forever? Do you hold a grudge against them forever? Then you're not loving them the way that Christ loves you. You're not meeting that high ethic. So inside of the church, we love one another the way he has loved us. But Paul is speaking more broadly in Romans 13. He's not talking about just what goes on inside the church. He's talking about the love we show to everyone outside the church in the common kingdom of man. And that is evident in the language that comes after because he goes from talking about the law and the fulfillment Uh, or it goes to talking about the law and and the fulfillment of the second table of the law. This is where he shifts his attention as you start getting into verse, uh, the end of verse 8 and into verse 9. And so let's go there now. Paul says the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. And then he starts to list out the second table of the moral law, the Ten Commandments. The first table of the Ten Commandments have to do with the way that you love God, right? No other gods before him not bowing down to idols, not blaspheming his name. I saw yesterday that the coach of Michigan, not the actual coach because he was suspended for possibly stealing people's signs, but I saw yesterday that the interim coach of Michigan, after winning the game, was interviewed. You know how they do the post game. Coach, how are you feeling? He said the F word twice 
in his interview and a couple of other colorful words in the interview. And right before he said all that, he said, and I just want to thank my Lord in heaven. And people on Twitter were so upset at his lack of professionality, and I thought, that's not the offense here. The lack, the lack of professionality is not the transgression. The transgression is to say the name of the Lord and then to curse like that. To blaspheme his name. That is the transgression. No dishonoring of the Sabbath. This is the first table of the law. But the second table of the law is what Paul is listing out in verse 8. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. He doesn't specifically list out the bearing of false witness or honoring your father and mother, but they would be covered under the phrase any other commandment. And Jesus told us the whole of the law can really be boiled down to two commandments, right? In Matthew 22, verse 37, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. That sums up the first table of the law. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. As Paul speaks about the love we should have for everyone, he's pointing to the second commandment, which is like the great and first one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is why he says that all these commandments and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He uses the very words of the Lord Jesus to sum up the second table of the law. And so you might wonder, why does he bring this up? Because he wants us to know that in the same way, Christian, that you pay your taxes to the state and the common kingdom of man as a recipient of God's grace, you need to render love to everyone in the common kingdom of man. You pay your taxes to the state and you pay your love to everybody. In the name of Jesus who has saved you, you must fulfill the law by loving your neighbor as yourself. So teaching point number two, Christians show love to everyone by fulfilling the second table of the law. Christians show love to everyone by fulfilling the second table of the law. Has God's love done you wrong? Anybody want to answer? Has God's love done you wrong? No, of course not. You know why God's love hasn't done you wrong? Because it's true love. Like you get a couple of seventh graders together with some middle school puppy love, somebody will do somebody wrong pretty quickly. Because it's not true love. The nature of true love is to not do wrong to the one receiving the love. Imagine meeting somebody who's constantly fighting with their significant other. They dog them behind their back. They sabotage their lives. They control them and manipulate them. And their significant other does all this right back to them. And they look at you and they say, this is true love. You would say, no, it's not. It's codependency. Get out or get counseling, but this is not true love. We understand that true love is for the good of another. It might require sacrifice for yourself. You might have to lose something, but it's for the good of another. It's an action, not just a sentiment. If your actions have the intent of harming and damaging other people, you can't say you love them. To steal from them, to lie about them, to murder them would be to transgress the law. To give give to them when, when they are without to tell them the truth, to try to preserve their lives from danger and sin, this would be the fulfillment of the law. 
This isn't rocket science, right? But it's the most important of sciences because we are ultimately talking about the most central of Christian virtues. There are so many Bible verses that direct us to be people that love. We can't list them all out this morning. You would never go home, so I'll just choose a few. Start with the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So your love for your neighbor is connected to who he is. In light of who he is, love your neighbor. Then we see the great requirement of man. Micah 6.8, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. To do justice is to do what is good and what is right toward everyone in the common kingdom of man. To love kindness is to have an affection in your will for pouring out affection on others, meaning as you do good works, you're not like, I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to do it, Jesus told me to do it, right? Right? That's not what you do. If you love kindness, it means that your heart gets excited about the opportunity to love. That, that when the spotlight of, of circumstances shines on something and you see a need, your heart just leaps and it's just like, I can't wait to do it. Can't wait to love. Now, sometimes the flesh will rise up and go, yeah, really, right now? Right? And you got to combat the flesh. There's no doubt about that. But believers should love kindness. And of course, we're called to love God by walking humbly with him, expressing our love to him in obedience. That's the only way you'll ever really love the world, by executing justice and loving kindness. You've got to walk with God. It's just like Leviticus 19 says, love your neighbors yourself, I am the Lord. When Christ was on earth ministering, he summed up the law, we saw that already, and then in Luke 6.31, he says, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. It's the same law of love. It's the same idea. These ethics carry on in the rest of the New Testament. The Apostle John, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. We see the reason for our love in 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. And then the most famous of love passages in the New Testament, Paul's words to Corinth, heard at many weddings, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And if you don't have it, your Christian life is just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That's what Paul tells the Corinthians. The reality is, is that not only are we representing the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man by showing this love, church, you're the only ones capable of showing this love. Theologically, Christian witness is unique because you're the only one who can truly fulfill the law and love your neighbors. Let me tell you why that's true. We've sang about it this morning in Psalm 51. Adam was our representative. He sinned against God in the garden. We all fell with him and sinned in him, and death spread to all men. This is Romans 5. And this truth is evident in the fact that all of the children that came from human mom and dads in Adam's line are born with a sin nature. Nobody has to teach a kid how to break the second table of the law. They lie to preserve themselves without a lesson, don't they? 
You don't have to sit him down and say, son, let me teach you how to lie to get out of trouble. You find out they know how to do that the first time they do it to you. They steal to satisfy their lusts without a lecture, even in the nursery. If you could get down to the core of the human heart, the unregenerate human heart that has not been touched by the grace of God, and you could pull out the moral root and you could look at it, you would find that everybody who has not been saved by the grace of God has a root that is sinful, meaning everything that comes from that person's life, everything that comes from that root, it is sinful. It's filthy rags before God. Now that does not mean that our unbelieving neighbors cannot do good in this world. Of course not. Your unbelieving neighbors here in the common kingdom of man, they love their families. They pay their taxes just like you. They can be good citizens and great helpers to the community just like you. They can be good coaches and teachers and politicians and culture shapers. But here's the difference between you and them. They cannot do it as an act of worship to God. Here's Lorraine Botner on this. He says, the unregenerate man, he may give you a million dollars to build a hospital, but cannot give even a cup of cold water to a disciple in the name of Jesus. This is because of the depravity of the soul. The futility of a mind that has not ended its rebellion against God, has not agreed to his blood-bought terms. Romans 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. How do you get out of the flesh? The redemption of Jesus Christ is the only way. So those who are unredeemed cannot please God in their flesh. Our unbelieving friends and neighbors have a mind set on the flesh. Even in their good works, there's no thought of honoring God, only honoring the desires of their own flesh. And if there's any thought of honoring God, the thought is, Lord, look how I've honored you with this good work. Look how righteous I am. Surely you'll let me into heaven. They simply cannot please God. They can be great citizens, but their citizenry is not reverence to the Lord because it's polluted by sin. They can be great fathers, but their fatherhood is not ultimately pleasing to God because it comes from a dead heart. They can be wonderful school board members, but their social action is still the product of a heart that is enslaved to sin. And so these seemingly pure actions get contaminated with lust and pride and self-congratulations, and this is because the heart has no faith, and you cannot please God without faith. Our unbelieving neighbors have hearts and wills that are enslaved and must be made alive. But the person who believes God and trusts in his son will be saved and will be freed from slavery to sin and they are given a new heart. And so if you could take the Christian and you could dissect their heart and you could pull out the root, what you would find is that if it has been touched by the grace of God, the moral root is no longer dead and poisonous, the root of bitterness is gone, and there will be a heart that is alive to God, a heart that belongs to Him, a heart that knows Him, and a heart that desires to please Him, and can please Him, because Christ has changed the nature of the heart, because there is faith in the heart, and faith is credited as righteousness, and that person can uh, appear before the throne of God boldly. So as Christians keep the second table of the law, we are performing neighborly love in the world and our actions then are truly spiritual worship. 
Your neighbor can't say that. Everything we do in this world as mothers and fathers and coaches, employees, employers, retired people, operators of motor vehicles, hello, how are you driving? How are you talking while you drive? Everything we do as citizens at a voting booth, it all becomes acts of neighborly love that we perform to the glory of God. Often you do the same things as your unbelieving friends, right? You're coaching the same Little League team, but what you're doing is an act of reasonable spiritual worship as a living sacrifice. The unbeliever says, I do this to make society better for the coming generations. I do this to make society better for me. I do this to feel good inside. I do this so my neighbor won't be without. All admirable motivations to some extent, but they are motivations that live and die under the sun. They are motivations that tend to be rooted in self. Even the desire to see your neighbor not be without can be rooted in a a sort of guilt. You're like, I can't have peace until they have the stuff that I think they need. The Christian's different. The Christian approves all of the commands of God in the law and says they are good. And the Christian takes delight in the commandments of God in the law. Even when we struggle to keep them, we long to. And the Christian makes a real effort to keep the commandments of God because we delight in them. We desire to please the Lord. And the Christian does these things in order to fulfill the law and love our neighbors as ourselves. And Thomas Watson said that though our obedience is imperfect, wherever it falls short, Christ is there to atone, to put his mercy in the scales. He said, evangelical obedience is true in its essence, though not perfect in its degree. And where it comes short, Christ puts his mercies into the scales, and then there is full weight. Unless Christ puts his mercy in the scale, there is no weight with God. Those who do not trust in Christ only have weightless works before the Lord. Filthy rags. Their attempts at goodness might impact society positively. It gains no eternal ground with God. And so as we go to verse 10, what this ultimately means is that as believers, as those who have been freed from slavery to sin, as those who can truly do good as an act of worship to God, we should be the most loving people on the earth. Nobody should outdo us in love. Not a Muslim, not a Mormon, not an atheist, not an agnostic, no one. Christian citizens should be the best citizens. As sojourners and exiles who have been loved, we should be the first in line to love. We should be fulfilling the law by executing justice and loving mercy and performing good works toward our neighbors. Because we see an eternal significance to everything that we do. And we believe that good neighborly works will lead to God being honored among those who, like that coach from Michigan, currently profane his name. 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You are a sojourner. You're a foreigner. You might be an American living in America, but the Bible says that you are not from around these parts. You are an exile. A citizen of another kingdom living in a place that is not your home. And in light of these realities, Peter says, Christian, be careful how you live. 
Do not let the passions of your flesh, which wage war against you, overcome you. Abstain. Keep your conduct honorable, so that when the world comes and they make accusations against you, just like they did against our Lord and the apostles, they really can't. Instead, they will see your good deeds, your neighborly fulfillment of the law, and they will give glory to God on the day that Christ returns, meaning that through your witness, they will become worshipers like us. So, final teaching point this morning, Christians go in love to everyone in the common kingdom in a variety of ways. We owe love, we show love, and we go in love to everyone in the common kingdom in a variety of ways. I want to ask you the most important of questions outside of, is Christ God? This is one of the most important questions we could ask. What's the mission of the church? Like, What's the mission of Seaford Baptist Church? What's the mission of Bethel Baptist Church? What's the mission of the, the churches in the pillar network of churches that we belong to? I'm going to go to the Southern Baptist Conservatives of Virginia homecoming tonight and tomorrow and Tuesday. So all these pastors and, and lay leaders and churches come together. What's the mission of these people? What's our mandate? Well, as I ask that, I'm sure if you have been in a Sunday school class or maybe been around the Bible for a little while or sat in church for a little while, some Bible verses start to spring to mind. Uh, maybe most prominently, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where we're told to make disciples On the authority of Christ, we are told to make disciples, to baptize those disciples in the name of the triune God, to teach them everything Jesus has taught us. And when we teach them everything Jesus taught us, that means we're going to teach them how to make disciples. So then they go and they do the same thing. They make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. This is kingdom multiplication, and it is the work that God has prepared for us as the workmanship of Christ to build the kingdom of God disciple by disciple, conversion by conversion. Acts 1.8, we're to be spirit-filled witnesses to the end of the earth, to go to the nations. John 20.21, 20, we are sent by the Son as the Son is sent by the Father. The same way that God sent Jesus, Jesus sends you. And so we go into the world and we evangelize and we preach and we proclaim and we disciple for the sake of what? To build the kingdom. That's the mission of the church. Building the kingdom of God soul by soul through the preaching of the gospel evangelizing, baptizing, teaching, then one day the second Adam will return. The first Adam failed in his covenant with the Father to be a king priest. The second Adam did not. Right now we see God restraining evil with the imperfect state. And while that is happening, the church is here in the world building the kingdom of God. And once it is built, and all the people of God who have faith like Abraham, what Paul calls the true Israel in Galatians, when they come into the kingdom, the second Adam will return. And when he does, the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdom of the Son. But until then, the one job of the church is kingdom building through gospel proclamation and discipleship. Listen to me. It's not to transform the culture. And it is not to transform the society that is around us. Are there going to be times we speak to the culture and we say, repent? Absolutely. 
We've got to warn Babylon that she is wrong to think she will never be judged. We might have to warn the magistrate that he's wrong to think he'll never be judged. We call evil what it is from our pulpits and at our dinner tables and in the public square, but to what end? Is it to transform this culture? To transform society? No. Because that's not our mandate. That was Adam's mandate. He was supposed to shape the world and he failed. He could not uphold the covenant of works. He does not get the rest. But the second Adam did not fail. He upheld the covenant of works. He never sinned. And when he returns, the old will pass away and the new will come and his dominion will be perfectly realized on every square inch of the earth. Sometimes you hear people say Christians need to take over this world. The old church rules the state business. And they believe the church should spend her time and her money and her efforts to transform society. Liberal and conservative Christians fall into this error. They say the church needs to consume herself with fighting culture wars and winning elections. And we'll often justify it with the Genesis 1 mandate and say, hey, fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. Subdue the government. Subdue every inch. But church family, we are not new creations in Adam. And praise God that is true. Because if we were, we would still be under the covenant of works. But we're not any longer. You and I are not attempting to live a perfect life before God in order to obtain a blessing. We would never be able to do it. We are under a covenant of grace. We are being remade in the image of the second Adam. We are new creations in Christ. Our covenant is no longer do this and live. Our covenant is Christ did this and so you live. Praise the Lord. And the dominion mandate that was given to the first Adam That is being exercised by the institution of government in the common kingdom of man. It is the imperfect servant of good that God has put in place until Christ returns with his perfect government. And as we wait on the perfect government of the second Adam, our job is not to transform the culture, it's not to transform the society, it is to see hearts transformed through gospel preaching, to build the kingdom. Now, there's going to be some positive societal effects when the church is being salt and light. Slavery will get abolished, right? Roe v. Wade will get overturned nationally. As we saw this week, there is work to do in the states. Positive societal effects will will come to pass when the church is doing a good job of being Christian witnesses and fulfilling the law of love. But that's a byproduct. It is not the end goal. When, the, when you hear people start saying things like the church needs to take over Capitol Hill, they're confusing our mission with our ultimate destination. One day, Jesus will take over Capitol Hill. The Oval Office will be his, and every other throne on this earth will belong to him. And we will be his co-heirs as those who suffer with him now. We will reign with him later. That's the destination when we run around saying this is the way things to be, uh, need to be right now, what you have is an over-realized eschatology. You want the end times before the end. And what often ends up happening is you put hope in political action to do something that only the gospel can do. 
You want the Republican Party to transform the hearts of Americans so that they will vote conservative. The Republican Party does not have the ability to transform hearts, and neither does the Democrats. Human ideologies and opinions and powers do not transform hearts. It's the grace of God that does that. And we should be content as the church to be on the mission that Christ gave us. To build the church on the foundation of the word of God. Christ himself being the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets who gave us the word being the foundation. And then to lay living stone on living stone. Redeemed soul on redeemed soul until the temple is complete. But don't confuse the common kingdom work with the redemptive kingdom work. Government restrains evil and promotes peace with the sword. We tear down principalities that are spiritual and we slay the dominion of sin with the gospel. It's different work. As the church, we exist in the common kingdom, but we are building the redemptive kingdom. The government can't do that. Now, you might wonder, well, if it's not the mission of the church to transform the world, what do we do about the sin in the world? The corruption in the world? The attack on children in the world? What we saw in Ohio this week, hmm. that is a blood guiltiness that rests on our nation, church. From the womb, with DIY abortion options becoming commonplace, there's an attack on our children. The things we want to spend money on, our government wants to spend money on, but they don't want to give money to educate children. You ever notice that? How, much, how little money gets to the educators. Satan loves that. He loves to see children suffer. He loves to see the state creating laws that encourage irreversible measures to be taken against a child's body in the name of gender-affirming care. So do we just sit back and watch the world burn while we build the church? No. We'll deep dive next week into a time for action and how we should be living in this time. But the, the mission of the church is to build the kingdom through making the disciples. There's no doubt about that. But there's going to be times that in the name of neighborly love that we stand up against evil. Because otherwise they're not going to hear our gospel. That's why we're so passionate about the right to life here in our church. That's why we stand up for the unborn in our church. We commit money and time to the unborn in our church. That is not to try to win a political ideological war. It's not a political issue. It's a neighborly love issue. These are human beings. They're people that are dying in the womb. A little baby in the womb has every right to live and experience equality as much as the slave on the plantation in the 1800s and the 1700s. We believe that as Americans and as Christians. And so yes, we will stand against those things, but not because we're Republicans or Democrats, but because we're Christians. And we want to preach the gospel to our neighbors. And call on them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, their mind, their soul, and strength. But if we don't love them as our neighbor, they're not going to hear it. Within the church also, there are different individuals that are going to be called to do all sorts of different things with their gifts to go about the work of spreading the good news. And we have to recognize that. In verse 10, Paul says that when we go in love to the world, we do no wrong to our neighbor. And that is because love is the, f- the fulfilling of the law. But we're going to fulfill the law in all sorts of different ways. Some of you are going to respond to the sin in the world by being school teachers. You're going to go represent the redemptive kingdom of God and the common kingdom of man as an educator. It's what you're going to do. Some of you already did it. 
You're going to serve us in the military. You work for a big company with an admin role. You work for NASA. You stay home. You care for your children. You build the household with discipling love. You're retired. You eat breakfast with your godly friends three times a week. And you love it. Everywhere you go, as an individual, you should be endeavoring to fulfill the law for the glory of Christ, loving your neighbor. And some of you, you're going to feel compelled and convicted by the Holy Spirit to go down to the school board and speak against LGBT ethics in the public education classroom. And some of you are going to feel convicted and called to write letters to the state senate about justice for U.S. veterans getting benefits. And some of you will get down on your knees and you will pray and you will go and you will vote faithfully and then you'll drive to the local food pantry where you give your time. And in doing these things, you keep your conduct honorable and you fulfill the law for the glory of Christ, loving your neighbor. But understand, just because God has called you to do this, it doesn't mean it's the mission of the whole church. The mission of the church is to make disciples. Inside of that mission, he calls different individuals to go about that disciple-making work in numerous ways. Some people get called into the public square, and they'll go be a senator. And some people are going to get up and go to the shop and turn wrenches. But both of them are there to fulfill the second table of the law as a believer and to point to the Lord Jesus, the second Adam who has saved our souls, and to say to the world, you can come into the kingdom as well. He died and rose again for you. One day he's going to come again. Let me show you by loving you. Let me call on you to repent and believe. And let me give you action behind that message that will show you that I mean what I say. That's how we represent the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, using our callings in the common realm to springboard into building the redemptive kingdom of Christ. The band's going to come back, and I will point to an Old Testament passage for our final thought this morning. Judah, in the Old Testament, is in exile in Babylon. In 586 BC, the Babylonians are permitted by God to come in and to carry people off into exile because the people repeatedly rejected God's warnings, rejected God's laws, God's ways, and God's worship. They found themselves under spiritual discipline and in exile. Sojourners and exiles in a kingdom that is not their home. What Judah was experiencing in Babylon is what you and I experience in this foreign world. We may not be under the Lord's discipline, but we live here in a kingdom that is not our home. And God spoke to those people in exile through the prophet Jeremiah. And listen to what he says, because I think it's a word for us. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I love this. I love that God says to his people in exile, live your life. Build a house, get married, eat some fruit that you grow out of the ground. Pray for the city. Seek its good. And this is what we do in this world. 
The reformer Martin Luther lived to this attitude. He was once asked, Martin, what would you do if you knew the Lord was to return tomorrow? He said, I would plant a tree. Meaning he would continue to represent the kingdom of God in this world by doing good and fulfilling the law. So go be a good real estate agent. Go be a good office administrator. Go be a good civil servant. Represent Christ in Babylon by seeking the welfare of the city. Fulfill the law of love. Plant a tree. Build the kingdom of Christ until he returns and our dual citizenship ends. And finally, after all these many years, we get to go home. Father, we thank you for home.